I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could live in the East Village on a part-time waiter's salary and still afford to go clubbing, when sushi restaurants had smoking sections and MTV was commercial-free, when you could rub shoulders with A-listers but still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, an eyelash, tiny-sized chiclets, and a miniature hangman's noose. Love is a many-splendored thing. A pictorial encyclopedia of aberrant behavior, volume one, Crimes and Punishment was waiting for me at my apartment in a large manila envelope that also contained a dinner fork tine with a feather crazy glued to each end, an obituary from the Times, Eddie May Green, Seamstress, 114, and a Lincoln log, the short stubby kind, which appeared to have been gnawed upon. When I opened the book, which was not easy, it was bound with piano wire, an index card fell into my lap. In eyebrow pencil, in that crazy hand of hers, it said, If this were a piece of glass, you'd be bleeding now. Still love me? She had signed her name in the usual way. With a staple. Sarah's deliveries. They were her way of making me forgive her latest indignity and start jumping through hoops again. To rectify a previous crisis, she made me a mixed-media portrait of myself. David at Rest, 1993. Sarah Salmas, born 1969. Sandpaper, paint marker, tiny-sized chiclets, frying pan, hot glue gun. On a different occasion, she sent a messenger to deliver a package to me containing a coupon for Pamprin, a tequila lollipop with the worm in it, and an assortment of sticks and leaves. Sarah has this theory about gifts. She says the only gifts worth giving are the ones that have never been exchanged in the course of human history. And since so many things have been passed back and forth at this late date, you have to go to great lengths to find a genuine, first-time given gift. Sure, scores of romantics over the ages have given away a lock of their hair, but how many have given their beloved a single hair? How many gave a toenail painted iridescent gold, floating moonlike over a cobalt blue-painted matchbook? How many had ever taken the time to thread an eyelash through a packet of ground pepper? That moves me. The first time I saw Sarah Salmas, she was making copies of a layout she'd done for the jacket of a book of poetry by a Holocaust survivor. She was the newly hired assistant to the art director of Hyperion, and I was trying to get a look down her sleeve hole, which was large enough to allow me a pretty good view of an off-white, almost military-style brassiere sheathing her breast like a siloed missile. With the copier light playing prettily over it, her profile was like an exquisite succession of commas. I began to obsess. There was nothing I could do about it, and her occasional banality did nothing to diminish my debilitating infatuation. One of my only true life goals is that someday I want to be the father of a child, but at almost 30, when my peers are starting families, I'm still figuring out whether I'm good at anything. Years will pass before I might be husband material. As for breadwinner and eventual dad, Y2K maybe. That's fine with Amanda, who wants nothing more than for us to continue. She isn't even divorced yet, and from what I gather about how she and her husband go about taking action, 
The deal won't be finalized anytime soon. Goosed by my encroaching 30th birthday, the perpetual enticement of Sarah Salmas, and the dispiriting knowledge that I can coast in my current relationship, I start to wonder where this thing of ours is going. The feeling swiftly snowballs. Amanda picks up tickets for a matinee of Until the End of the World at the Angelica. I make myself tell her I can't go on this way forever. Meaning, I can't go on this way at all. We go to the movie anyway. Convoluted, somber, and interminable, it does not help things in the least. Berlin, Paris, Lisbon, and then America. We had American babies. In retrospect, it couldn't possibly have lived up to its soundtrack, which included original recordings by the likes of Lou Reed, Elvis Costello, Patti Smith, R.E.M., and Can along with ethereal new presences like Julie Cruz, who's broken through to the masses via Twin Peaks and seems poised to be the next big Cocteau twin. A few days later, Amanda leaves a mixtape postscript with my doorman. Two songs come from the Until the End of the World soundtrack, so at least our purgatorial experience at the Angelica has an upside. The tape title, Contest of a Lifetime comes from a phrase she cut out from a magazine. Otherwise, the insert is unlabeled. Not that any annotation is necessary. If there's ever been a tape where a song that said you meant me and the ones that said me meant her, this is it.
smacked in the gut by my own native medium. And in a way, I welcome the punch. I deserve to feel some pain here. My reward, if you could call it that, is that Sarah, mercurial, not quite broken up with her boyfriend Sarah, can now be my full-time obsession. Despite my artistic limitations, I'm inspired to pick up a pen and draw cartoons to amuse her. I find a way to render Sarah as a beautiful, blonde, urban-dwelling sprite and our various co-workers as pathetic boobs. One night, we leave work together and walk to her apartment. We drink some white wine and she lets me massage her feet. But I have to do it correctly, pressing the toes back and applying pressure to the underside with bunched knuckles. Like treating a prized thoroughbred. She's unpredictable, not hemmed in by conventional modes of social behavior or discourse. We'll be walking up Fifth Avenue and she'll think of something and start laughing and bump right into me from laughter. Authentically clumsy, not a put-on at all. Almost a loss of control. Sarah has two dick stories. She was dating this guy who was enormous. Like nothing she'd ever seen. Like a tennis ball can, she said. The first time she saw it, she insisted on calling her friend, grabbing the phone, saying, Megan, I am holding the hugest penis in the entire world right now. And then this other time, she met a Hollywood star at a bar one night, and he went after her and, and took her back to his place. And this guy had the smallest penis she had ever seen. He even made a joke about it. Somehow, she resisted the urge to call Megan until the next day. Sarah finally lets me have my way with her on the first night of the L.A. riots. Not as a statement of unity or anything, it just worked out that way. Disney shut down its offices in the early afternoon and advised its employees to proceed swiftly to a secure location in the event that New York City experienced a riot of its own. And one thing led to another. She relented more than anything else. I carried her to the four-poster bed, and she gestured that she wanted me to remove her boots. So I did. And her socks. So I did. Her jeans, too. And all the while, she lay there like a lazy monarch being denuded by her manservant after a long day of beheadings and teas. My eyes were not allowed to linger over her nakedness. The lights had to be off. She shielded herself beneath a giant down comforter. Like in a frustrating dream, when it was over, I barely felt that I'd seen her. I closed my eyes and tried to summon what she looked like naked, and the picture blurred over. And when we were in our final throes, she didn't whisper, Fuck me, as one might expect, or possibly even hope. Nope. She said, Fuck you. Afterward, we lay there in curious silence, Sarah gazing at me as one would survey a lab specimen. Nevertheless, Charlie Brown to her Lucy, I persisted. With the occasional result of getting her back into bed, which always left me feeling let down, desperate, and faintly ridiculous. Once, I tried to pull this ruse that I'd gotten myself a girlfriend, thinking that would get me past my unhealthy obsession. I'm a terrible liar, but Sarah bought the tale, which was a tall one. I designed my fictitious girlfriend for maximum annoyance. Her name was Kimberly. She worked at the UN. She spoke eight languages, 
was a yoga instructor, but her real passion was sculpting. And not just any old yoga. Kimberly was a practitioner of Bikram yoga, the kind performed in a room heated to 110 degrees, which was new then. And not just any kind of sculpting. She used special clays dug from selected spots because of their mineral count and enhanced tactile quality. When Sarah and I talked on the phone, I would drop some new and completely galling trait. Then Sarah started calling me Hun. Oh, Hun, she sounds amazing. I'm so happy for you, Hun. What Hun meant was that we would never sleep together again. We'd have a kind of brother-sister relationship. Why the hell couldn't she get jealous or make fun of my perfectly annoying Kimberly? My ruse had worked, but now what? I had neglected to begin with the end in mind. Then the postcard came. Around the edge was a repeating motif of the little icons you find on packages of chopsticks showing you how to use them, only she'd manipulated the images with Photoshop and now the hands made obscene gestures. Who is I kidding, anyway? Everywhere I looked, I saw Sarah. Things that shouldn't have reminded me of her, reminded me of her. Abandoned gloves in the street. Fish tanks in Chinese restaurants. Other women's perfume, because it reminded me that she wore perfume. The sun would rise and I'd think, ah, daytime. I met Sarah during the daytime. And I would sigh. So, I have Kimberly transferred to Namibia and ask Sarah to meet me for a drink at Bandito's on 2nd Avenue, known for its gigantic frozen margaritas and flammable tortilla chips. Eventually, she complies. Sarah's late, but that's to be expected. But when she does show up, she's with a guy. A guy. An extra guy. And this guy, kind of beefy, with a sculpted jaw and an air of surly disdain. Right, Dave he says, extending his hand. Uh, right. Whatever happened to hello? I draw away, but he holds on to my retreating hand. Liam, he says, giving a final shake and releasing it. Got it. Liam, I say, this time with italics. Friend of Sarah from... You might say that, he says with a smirk. You work together? A bit, a bit. What you drinking, geese? Tecate. Right. Sarah? Margarita? Right. No salt, though. I'm watching my kidneys. They guffaw together, tuned to the same frequency. Can I get one of these? I say, lifting up Liam's pack of smokes. Help yourself. Cheers, I say. I feel like I've seen you here before. Do you know Nigel? Frequents various watering holes on this block? Nigel. A grin materializes out of nowhere, one that might be described as movie star handsome were it not for the missing front tooth. Nigel? Do you suppose I have but one English friend named Nigel? Or is it that, me being British, I must have at least six or seven friends named Nigel? Sarah rolls her eyes. Liam. Actually, I'd be surprised if you had six or seven friends, period. Or a full stop, I guess you'd say. He grins again, a little less wolfishly. That's it, boys. Play nice. I'll be right back, she says, heading for the phone. For this is most assuredly in the days before cell phones. 
Sarah is so deathly afraid of being alone that she needs to be on the phone even when she's with people. There's a soft knock on my knee. Want a bump? He cocks his head to indicate the little packet of cocaine in his palm. That knock is a familiar sensation. Many of my nights out entail six or seven or twelve beers and numerous knee knocks and trips to some ghastly bathroom or other. The one at this place is especially cruel. Each wall is a mirror, so your grotesquely distorted features are reflected back and forth infinitely and you fade off disconcertingly into nothing. There's dead water in the soap dish, sodden paper towels strewn in clumps over damp floor tiles. When Liam locks the door behind me and regards me without expression, I feel like I've already had a big cocaine blast. You all right, mate? Fine. You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. No problem. He takes a step toward me, and I'm pretty certain something awful is about to happen. He places his hands on my waist, and I'm on the verge of fight or flight, but he just moves me aside gently, as if we're fox-trotting, and slips past me to the urinal. We should probably hurry this up. You think too much, mate, he says, in the midst of a languorous piss. I just hear people outside the door and fuck them. Liam turns back around without flushing, zips up and retrieves the coke and a set of keys from his jeans. He scoops out a healthy load of it. I sniff, but nothing comes up. Liam reaches toward me and gently places his thumb over one nostril, as if him touching my nose were the most natural thing in the world. I breathe in, and the hit shoots straight up into my brain. Woo! I shudder. Wanka. Liam half whispers. Gosh, says Sarah when we return. You guys are practically lovers now. A few drinks later, I slip off to feed the jukebox. When I turn around, there's a space at the bar where Sarah and Liam had been. Her jacket's still on her chair, so they're in the building, in that awful bathroom. And as the minutes tick by, my rage begins to flow, post-nasally and otherwise. Finally, I blow out the door in a cartoon huff. Blocks later, I find a phone and put in a call to the bar, whose tender confirms that Sarah Salmas has just paid the tab and left with some bloke. When I get back home, I don't hesitate. I gather everything up. The glitter-dipped pine cone, the molded rubber Radis Norvegicus, the faded old maid cards, the miniature hangman's noose fashioned from her own blonde hair, the sticks, leaves, and frying pan, and dump it all down my building's trash chute. But when I get to the fridge for a congratulatory beer, I see that in my haste, I miss the eyelash pepper packet secured to the refrigerator with a rectangular magnet showing Edith Massey in her pink flamingos playpen. Gently sliding the eyelash out, I carry it to the counter and place it under a shot glass while I fetch a couple of vintage guitar picks, guild, medium gauge, tortoise shell hue. I lay the lash down between them, light matches to seal the edges, and place the wedge inside a flattened Dixie Riddle cup. Where do cows go on Saturday night? The movies. Encircling it with a bow fashioned from dental floss, mint, waxed, I place the item in an empty cassette box and call Speedy B's personal courier service. Those guitar picks, Remnants of my teenage years taking lessons from a part-time guild salesman are deeply permeated with my thumb and finger oils. 
At least our DNA will be inextricably bound, or very close together anyway, for something like eternity. Sarah is never going to be mine, but I derive some small shred of peace knowing she'll be the willing custodian of our little fossil, and that we, or the idea of us, will remain preserved in that mottled heart-shaped amber. Next up, in the season finale, you heard that right, the season finale. I hobnob with musical giants in a penthouse suite, but it's a long way down. Check out IamTheFly.org for a mix of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.